Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 32 and the blessing of forgiveness. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that from from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, you clearly reveal the person and the work and the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at this psalm today, we are reminded, Lord, uh, that we, we need you. We need to know you more. We need to know of the great cost that you paid uh, at, in your death, your burial, and your resurrection. We need to know more of your word And so, Lord, as we come now to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would use it. And we thank you that you do. Isaiah 55, 11 says that your word will not return without void, that you will help us to grow in your grace and knowledge as you reveal it in the word. So we thank you, Lord, for the word. We thank you, Lord, that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy, that it is enough, that you aim to teach us from the word and to help us to grow in the word, from the word. So Lord, help us to be rooted in the word. Help us to grow in the word. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and open it to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bite and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Edward Snowden is behind the, the big, was behind one of the biggest leaks in the history of the National Security Agency. In May 
2013, this 29-year-old caused an uproar by releasing a massive amount of information on the scope of government surveillance. It turns out, we learned from these leaks from Snowden, that the NSA or the National Security Agency keeps a record of every phone call we make and looks into our lives in ways in which we never imagined. And this started a national conversation about privacy because we, we know that there is no such thing as anonymity. If we want to keep our privacy, we have to go off the grid. We have to pay cash for every purchase. We have to stay off the internet. We have to not even use a cell phone. Even then, cameras will see us, and face recognition software might identify us, and this is only going to increase. But we also need to understand something that as Christians, from a biblical worldview, we need to understand that even the best efforts of the NSA are nothing, nothing compared to the complete and utter knowledge of God of us. The NSA has only their technology for several decades, but 3,000 years ago, the psalmist said in Psalm 139 verse 2, you know when I sit and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. This is a problem because all of us sin, even if we have been Christians for many years. In fact, as we grow, as we mature in Christ, we begin to see sin in our life that we never noticed before. And the Apostle John says this in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John wrote that when he was near the end of his life. As an apostle in his 90s, we might think that he had gotten to the point where he no longer sinned, and yet the Apostle John includes himself when he says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, God sees all. He knows all. And this is one reason among many why the forgiveness of our sins <coughs> is one of the greatest blessings that we as Christians enjoy. The God who knows all forgives us of all of our sin. That is great news. Having your sins forgiven is better than having your student loans paid off. It's better than having your house paid for totally. It's better than having a ticket expunged from your record. You see, when God forgives you, he wipes the record clean, all of it. King David tried to hide his sin from God and others. Many think that Psalm 32 should be read with Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance after his affair with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And while his armies went off to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem and seduced an officer's wife. And when she became pregnant, David arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle. David had adultery and murder on his hands. He hid his sin, and yet in the kindness of God, God used the prophet Nathan to confront him. David described his confession in Psalm 51, a passionate and emotional psalm. And as part of this confession, David made a promise to God in Psalm 51, 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Psalm 32 could be the fulfillment of this promise. The title of Maskell of David suggests this is a teaching psalm. The word Maskell comes from a root meaning to instruct. In Psalm 32, David does not 
teach sinners and then turn them back to God. And so there's good reason to have David sin with Bathsheba in the back of our minds as we look at Psalm 32. And we need to ask ourselves a question before we dive into this text. What are you going to do when you sin? Are you going to hide it? Are you going to cover it over? Are you going to think that nobody will ultimately find out about it? That is like gluing wallpaper over a moldy wall. Or will you come out? Will you confess your sin and repent of it? As a Christian, you need to turn to God and admit your sin so that you can be forgiven. Every sinner, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe and trust in Christ to be saved. Now, we're going to consider the blessing first of forgiveness because David declares the blessing of forgiveness. This beatitude is at the heart of the psalm, and so we're going to spend a lot of time on the first two verses. The word blessed in verse 1 of Psalm 32 stands out because Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction to the psalm, begins and ends with this same word. In fact, this is the first time this word blessed has been used since the first line of the book of Psalms. And there's an important difference here, though. Psalm 1 declares the blessings of the ideal man who never sins or stands with sinners. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This blessing is for someone who constantly walks in the way of God, which None of us do perfectly. In fact, the tense of the Hebrew words in Psalm 1-1 indicates this man is never involved with anything tainted by evil. The man of Psalm 1, as we considered previously, is none other than Jesus Christ. But Psalm 32 declares the blessing of a man who is far from perfect. This man does sin and God forgives him. Psalm 32, 1-2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, David declares a blessing on the one whom God forgives. To emphasize the blessing of forgiveness, David repeats the beatitude in verse 2. What better way to encourage you and me than to confess our sins than a double promise of blessing? In fact, this blessing is even more attractive, even more tempting, because a good translation for the word blessed is happy. And so we could translate Psalm 32, 1 through 2. How happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven? How happy is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity? This is a joy of knowing that God is for you, that he is kind and merciful. Everyone wants to be blessed. Everybody wants to have happiness. And yet true happiness, true joy is only for those who are forgiven because of Christ. In fact, this blessing we need to say comes with full forgiveness. Verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 32 are an example of parallelism as David places four phrases side by side. This isn't just some flowery language. This parallelism covers the full scope of our sin and the full spectrum of the forgiveness of Christ. The Bible uses half a dozen words for sin, and David uses three of them here. Each has its own meaning, its own nuance. The word transgression has to do with rebellion. God created us in his image to live on his earth as his representatives. Like a father who leaves his son in charge of the house while he's gone, he expects us to take 
care of the earth and each other, but we don't obey him, do we? We are traitors. We are like an American soldier who joins Al-Qaeda and fights against his country in Afghanistan. We have defected to the enemy. We ruin our lives and the lives of others. We live in rebellion against God. And the word sin in verse 1 has to do with missing the mark. It has to do has the same idea as a Greek word used frequently in the New Testament, hamaratia. An archer bends, his, bends her bow and shoots, but the arrow falls short and tears into the grass. A man lines up his stance and to hit the ball on the green as a golfer, but instead he hooks it off into the trees. <coughs> and now this archer and this golfer didn't hit what they were aiming at. They missed the mark. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. We try to follow Christ, but we still miss the mark. And the third word for sin in these verses is iniquity. In verse 2, it means crookedness. It means perversion or waywardness. It also means guilt and punishment or even intentional sin. It's sometimes used in a general way to talk about sin as a whole. And looking at these words is like a holding up a black diamond. We see the different facets of our sin. The first word describes our relationship to God that we have rebelled against the Lord. The second word describes our relationship to the law of God. We fall short. We miss the mark. And the third word describes the effect that sin has on us. We are crooked. We are perverse. And we are guilty before God. With these three words, David describes the human condition. And these three words includes every kind of sin. But most important thing in these verses is not the nature of sin, is that all these sins can be forgiven. And so David matches these three words for sin with three words for pardon. The first word forgiven literally means to lift or carry away. Your transgression was like a boulder pinning you to the ground, but God lifted it and God carried it away. The second word covered in verse 1 has to do with atonement. The blood of a sacrifice covered the sins of the people and restored their relationship to God. The third word describes what God does not do. He does not count, verse 2, iniquities against this blessed man. And this is a bookkeeping word. It means to charge something to an account. You see, when God forgives, he does not charge our sin to an account. Our account, it's, it's as, as, as if you receive your credit card statement in the mail, but when you opened it, there were no charges on it. You know you use the card, but the balance is zero. Your minimum payment is zero. Your penalties are zero. Our sin is removed from the ledger of God and the spreadsheet is empty. And this is the same accounting word that Moses uses in Genesis 15, 6 to describe the righteousness Abraham by faith. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. Genesis 15, 6. In God's accounting, he leaves sin off the ledger and adds righteousness to the ledger for those he blesses. And this is incredibly important because the Apostle Paul joins uh, Genesis 15, 6 and Psalm 32 to teach salvation by faith in Christ alone in the book of Romans. Romans 4, 2 through 8 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, by not counting our sin against us, God declares us to be righteous in and, uh, in and because of him. This is the blessing of God. This, it is from the hand of God. It is not a reward because we're so good. Psalm 32 is at the heart of the gospel. God clears the ledger. He deletes the data on the spreadsheet of your sin. And so we need to ask the question, who receives this blessing? Who receives the blessing of the forgiveness of our sins? The parallelism of these first two verses shifts in the second half of verse 2 to identify the kind of person that God forgives. And in his spirit, there is no deceit. The deceit does not have to do with lying to others. This is about lying to yourself and to God. 1 John 1, 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. How do we lie to ourselves? We can be so proud and think that we've never done anything wrong when there's tension or, or an issue in relationship. It's always something or somebody else's problem long ago or a long way from home. We can deceive ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. We might say, I'm not like so-and-so at work. I'm not like that other person across the street who dresses so provocatively. I'm not like those who take pride in a, in a gay pride event. We can deceive ourselves by being moral persons. We can deceive ourselves by focusing on the externals. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I go to church. I give money. I vote for the right candidates. We can deceive ourselves by thinking that this psalm is for somebody else when it's really for us. But the blessing of forgiveness is for those who do not lie to themselves and who are honest and transparent with God. In fact, we can be so deceived that we try to deceive God, even though he knows more about us than the NSA does. He knows more about us than Google does. We ignore our sin, we pretend it didn't happen, and we try to hide it, but deep down we know that he sees, and if God loves us, he will let us know that he sees. And so this is where David describes the process of forgiveness. In verses 3 through 7, David describes his personal experience as God would not let him ignore his sin. He describes how verses 1 through 2 were lived out in his own life. His inner turmoil led to confession and forgiveness. And once he had been restored, he taught others. The process began with David's stubborn silence. He would not confess his sin, but keep on going as if nothing went wrong. But God would not let him get away with it. Psalm 32, 3 through 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer, Salah. This is the perfect description of living with a guilty conscience. If, this, if you're a Christian and, and you're living this way, this describes you. If you think that you can live however you want to, and you wonder, why, why do I struggle with assurance? This is describing you. If you are a Christian, this describes the way you have felt when you will not repent and confess your sin to God. Physiologically, David's bones wasted away. Verse 3, he felt drained. His strength was sapped. Sin and guilt can indeed have an effect on our health and our vitality. Physiologically, he felt the heavy weight of God's hand. He felt the burden of his guilt. And when he lay down, he could not rest. 
And now finally, David gave in to the pressure and he confessed his sin. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sins to law. If God's hand is heavy on your conscience, you need to know that he loves you and he is making you miserable for your own good. That's an act of love. We are so stubborn. We think that we have it all figured out. And we are so sinful that, that God sometimes has to force us to turn to him for forgiveness of our sins. Remember, he dragged this confession out of David. If the Holy Spirit is making you miserable because of your sin, that is a sign not that he doesn't care for you, but that he cares for you. The time to worry is when your sin and God doesn't bother you. <clears throat> because Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 tells us very clearly that God disciplines those whom he loves. The guilt of our sin is forgiven through Jesus Christ. In God's accounting, our sin was placed on his ledger and his innocence was put on our ledger. To pick up the credit card analogy again, Christ received his statement in the mail and saw all sorts of charges he didn't make. But he didn't call the company and complain. He paid the char those charges for you and me. On the cross, Jesus died for sinners and paid for the guilt of everyone who turns to him. In the 14th century, Robert Bruce of Scotland was leading his men in a battle to gain independence from England. And near the end of the conflict, the English wanted to capture Bruce to keep him from the Scottish crown. And so they put his own bloodhounds on his trail. When the bloodhounds got close, Bruce could hear their bang. His attendants said, we are done for. They are on your trail and they will reveal your hiding place. Bruce replied, it's all right. Then he headed for a stream that flowed through the forest. He plunged in and waded upstream a short distance. And when he came out on the other bank, he was in the depths of the forest. Within minutes, the hounds tracing their master's steps came to the bank. They went no further. The English soldiers urged them on, but the trail was broken and the streams had carried the scent away. A short time later, the crown of Scotland rests on the head of Robert Bruce. The memory of our sins prodded by Satan can be like those baying dogs, but a stream flows red with the blood of God's own son. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are saved. No sin hound can touch us. The trail is broken by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, because David had experienced God's forgiveness so powerfully, he turns now to teach the people of God. Psalm 32, 6-7 says, Therefore let the... Everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Salah. And the phrase, let everyone who is godly in verse 6, tells us that David is thinking primarily of believers as he writes this psalm. Non-believers often do not have the slightest twins of conscience when they sin. God is not correcting them. God is not leading them like the people of Nineveh. Many people do not know their right hand from their left morally. But David here in this passage is thinking of godly people like him who fall into sin. Their temptation is to stay silent. You're ashamed. You're angry with yourself. You don't want to face God. You don't want to admit what you've done. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you run off and hide when you hear God coming, walking in the cool of day. And you need to call out to God while you can. If you do not confess your sin to God now, you will not be able to call out to him tomorrow. Sin is deceitful. And if you will not do it, deal with it, it will harden your heart. 
If you hide your sin and refuse to confess it, you're going to get to the point where you can't confess your sin. Your conscience will be calloused. You will have an unbelieving heart and you will apostatize. That is the consequence, friend. That is why we must keep short accounts with the Lord. That is why we talk about short accounts with God so often. It's not, it's not to be morbidly introspective of us. It's because we, we, are, we are still sinners. We have indwelling sin. And, it, and if we forget that, just think about the way in which you use your, your tongue and the many ways in which you fail to honor God with the tongue that God gave you and, and the breath that God gave you to use that tongue. That's a convicting thought. It's convicting for me. It's convicting in the midst of traffic. It's in the mi- convicting in the midst of at the grocery store. It's convicting to think of our lack of patience for somebody, even after we just heard the word preached, even just after we might have participated in the Lord's Supper. These are convicting things. We all each have areas in which we ourselves need to confess our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse the fallen righteous, because he goes on and says, We have one in Jesus who is our advocate before the Father. Finally, David describes the results of forgiveness. These are blessings that follow when we confess our sins. First, God speaks to the promise, his promise to promise his guidance to David and to us. Psalm 32, 8 through 9 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse and a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. This sort of guidance God is promising here is not what college you should go to, who you should marry, whether you should take a new job offer or some other decision. In the context, this guidance concerns godly living. The Holy Spirit will teach you to obey and to walk in the way of the righteous. A horse or a mule will not obey without a bit turning this way or that. In context, that bit is the heavy hand of God that forced David to finally confess his sins. <coughs> you see, God wants you to understand his ways and to walk in them. God promises enduring love for those who confess their sins. Psalm 32.10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You see, steadfast love is God's covenant love, his commitment to his people. He is like a father, always hoping his prodigal son will return, always ready to welcome him home. And if you trust him to forgive your sins, his love will surround you. So then this is, leads us to the third result of forgiveness and why it's joy. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is a loud verse, and it is a vital verse for us as the people of God. You see, when you fail and when God forgives you, it makes you want to stand up and shout for joy. The expression, be glad and rejoice, both describe spontaneous shouts of joy after describing sin with three words in the first verses, David has three shouts of joy at the end for those who are forgiven. And if you are forgiven, you will make some noise to the Lord. You will give thanks to the Lord. Luke 7, 47 says this, that Jesus said that he who is forgiven little loves little. If you know that God, what God has done for you, 
it makes you want to shout. If your heart is not touched, if your emotions are not involved, do you really know you have been forgiven? You see, God is so good. He knows more about us than the NSA does. And he still forgives us. Confess your sin to the Lord. His complete knowledge of you means complete forgiveness because of Christ. This should lead us to praise. But there's also another danger. And some people today think, well, I, I've already been forgiven, and so I can just do whatever I want to. I've, I'm forgiven, so I'll just live however I want to. I'll just treat people however I want to. Now, it's true that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. True. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what Christ has done for us. But because we are saved, God requires us to live in a certain way. This is not a popular message for us to hear today, but it is an important one for us to hear, especially in light of what we've heard from this psalm. Because Paul deals with this in the book of Romans. In the first five chapters, he tells us about our sin and how we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but how Christ has come and paid for our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, and how we can be forgiven because of Christ. But then he does something interesting in chapter 6. After describing this, he talks to the person who thinks that they can live however they want to live. And he says, may it never be in Romans 6, 1 and 2. See, the person who is forgiven much, they don't desire to live for themselves. They know that because of sovereign grace, the grace of God in Christ, they live a life, are to live a life of gratitude. They are to live a life of thankfulness. And this is why the Bible uses the language of indicative imperative. Indicative describes much of what this passage is about. It's about Christ. It's about what he's done on our behalf and his death, burial, and resurrection. But if you read, for example, Romans, which I just explained, the first five chapters are all about Christ, then in, in, in chapters 12, he describes what we're to do. If you look at Paul's epistles, for example, Ephesians, let's use Ephesians and Colossians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, he gives the indicative. He explains what Christ has done. And then the imperative is what we're to do. In Colossians, the same thing. In the first few two chapters, he's explaining what Christ has done. In chapter 3, he gives the imperative, <coughs> which is, to put off the old man, to put on the new man. And too many Christians just want to live in the, in the realm of the indicative, and they never want to obey the imperative. <coughs> Here's the problem with that. When you love somebody, you want to obey. When, when, because of what Christ has done, we should obey him. Jesus says in in John 14, 15, speaking, by the way, in the context of the upper room discourse to his disciples, those who follow him in all of life, if you love me, obey my commandments. This is what we're talking about. If you have been forgiven of your sin and you are a new creation, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, you belong to Christ. You are in him and you are to obey him. That means that Paul is right in Colossians 3 to tell you to put off your old man, to put on the new man. And he describes what the character of the man is who walks 
with God, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, but he walks in the counsels of God. He walks with God. He walks in communion with God he, because he's vitally connected. Paul describes in Colossians 3, what, what, in the first few verses, what the, the life of the man who, who isn't vitally connected to Christ, who isn't putting off the sin, and instead is, this is worldly. This is what a worldly life looks like. And then when he switches and he tells us, but put off the old man, put on the new man, he describes what the new man is to look like, what the new man is to be characterized by. And by the way, these are ongoing works of the Spirit's work in the life of the Christian who is in union with Christ. This side of heaven, we will never do this perfectly. We will never walk perfectly. But that doesn't mean that we should excuse or even minimize our sin. We should own up to it. God's complete knowledge means that that wherever you are and whatever device you're on, God sees, God knows, and he is keeping record even more so than the NSA is of all the data usage that you're doing. And so just because you, th- you think that you are alone, God is there. God sees. There's nowhere that you go that God is not. And there's also that that means practically, it means that it means that God will hold you accountable for every deed done in the darkness, the supposed darkness, where you think God is not, God is. He is sovereign and he knows and he sees. And yet that also means something as well, that God is going to, he's going to bring to light those things, whether in this life or in the life to come, he's going to expose all darkness because God is holy and God will expose all of our sin. And that is why what's done for the Lord will only remain. It will only last all the arrest. In first uh, <coughs> Corinthians three, Paul says that some of our work might be blown away. It might be just dust. Only done what's done for the Lord. What's rooted in the scripture, what's motivated by the glory of God for the good of others will be our reward. We will be rewarded. And this is so important to understand because it matters it matters how we're living. It matters what we do with the precious gift of Christ. It matters that we put to death our sin because we have a Savior who actually paid, who actually died. And it matters that we not only just believe that he, he saved us, but also that we're taking hold of Christ, that we're putting to death our sin and we're growing in these things. Too many Christians today Think, you know what, I'm saved. I'm going to get my eternal life card. And you never see any difference. And you wonder why often these are the same people who struggle with assurance. It's because you're not taking hold of what you believe. You're not putting it into practice. You you're only have gone so far to believe the indicative of what Christ has done. And you're not believing the rest. That Christ is sufficient to help you grow to be like him. Friends, this is a real issue. And I'll just state it this way in the language of the psalm. See, forgiveness of sin, it makes a difference in our life. It leads to something. We don't just begin because we have been forgiven. We will be forgiven in the end because of Christ. So salvation is not just for our conversion to lead us into the pearly gates of heaven It's to help us to be like 
uh, the Lord, to grow to be like him. And this is why the Bible has much to say, not just about how we get into heaven, but how we, how we persevere till the end. And it's that perseverance, that watchfulness that we need. Not just saying, you know what, here, I'm a Christian. I'm going to just live however I want to because Jesus saved me. What about putting to death your sin? What about persevering to the end? What about being watchful? What about the purpose of suffering and trials in your life? If we only make, this is the problem in contemporary Christianity today. We have made, we have made salvation only getting, about getting into heaven. And we have not talked enough about repentance of sin. We have not talked enough about sanctification. We have not talked about the necessary consequence of getting saved. And so putting our sin to death, repenting of sin, keeping short accounts with God, doing the means of grace and walking with God daily are all neglected. Now, for sure, we are not saved. We, we are saved by grace alone. I'll say it this way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But because we believe those truths, it should lead us to something. It should lead us to obedience to God because we have a new heart with new desires. And out of a heart full of thankfulness and gratitude to God, we should desire to obey him by putting to death our sin, by not coddling it. And this is why Hebrews is so vital for us to understand when it says that a father, uh, <coughs> that God disciplines those whom he loves. God disciplines us for our good. He doesn't leave us stuck in the pig pen. He disciplines us. He's trying to get our attention. Now, some people think that God will not give you more than you can handle. But the opposite is true. God will often give you more than you can handle, so you'll stop relying on yourself. Because we are all prone to self-sufficiency. We're all prone to trust our performance. We think, you know what, if I, if I get this job, then I'll give God more money. When we forget that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and God gave us the money, which he gave us, and he'll hold us responsible as a steward for it. See, God is sovereign over all of our thinking. He's sovereign over all of our lives. I should say God is to be sovereign over all of our thinking and is sovereign over all of our lives. And so we must trust him. Christ isn't just sufficient for some aspect of our life, and then at the end we don't care about it. He's sufficient from, to bring us into, to convert us as children and, and cause us to be adopted children of God. And he is sovereign in helping us to turn away from our sin and to give us a love to remove uh, to, to remove the love of the world and to help us to see more of the painted beauties of Christ as revealed in the word of God. Of Christ, I should say the painted glories of Christ in the word of God. And all of this is part of the blessing of forgiveness. See, we have been forgiven of our sin and Christ is sufficient over it all. So the question is not just that are you going to make it through the pearly gates of heaven because you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you have been saved. But also, how are you presently, personally, doing in that? 
Are you vitally connected to Christ? And is Christ vitally connected to you? Are you abiding in the vine, meaning are you remaining in him? Or have you walked away from him? How are you doing in your walk with Christ today, right now? Are you harboring secret sin that you think that God doesn't know about? Well, we've covered that thoroughly today. God knows and God sees. So the question is, will you repent of it? Will you come out in the open about it? And are you ready to deal with the consequences for whatever that might be? You see, the more you walk with Christ, the more unsettled you will be by these hidden areas, these compartments of your life that dishonor the Lord. And the more you'll just desire to come out in the open and to confess them. And by the way, as people do, we should show them much grace because you know what? If we come down hard on people who come out of darkness, we should not expect them to have it all figured out. We should not be overly hard on them because you know what? We all have our struggles. That's why we're to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. But we should stop making excuses and we should actually confess our sin and actually turn from it with the help of God's grace <clears throat> and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and with the help of God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that it tells us not only who we are, it tells us what we really are. And it's who we are and what we are in light of you that really, really matters. So Lord, I pray for those who do not yet know you, that you might open eyes and ears to the glory of Christ. And I pray for those, Lord, who are in Christ, that we would be open, that we would be honest, and that we would freely confess our neediness of you. That we would be humble, Lord, not only just before you, but with others about what we claim to know about you from your word. That we would be transparent and confess our sins freely. That we would not hide behind a facade or behind a pretense, but that, Lord, we would come and we would confess our sins. Especially pray, Lord, for those who struggle with assurance that they would do that if they are living in a way that is contrary to who they belong to because of Christ. Lord, I pray that they would test themselves in light of 1 John on whether they truly love you or if they just think that they do. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that it is sufficient, that it is binding and it is clear, and that it teaches us and to helps us to walk in your ways in a way that it, it honors you and glorifies you. So we thank you, Lord, for the blessings of forgiveness that are ours because of Christ. We thank you that you are sufficient in all of your ways, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. 
You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 